Yes. You will remember that uh, we were in Genesis 26 uh, two weeks ago when I was last here. And so this is kind of a continuation of, of that previous sermon. Uh, because it's a long passage and because I want us to um, read it as we go along, um, I'm going to pray and then we'll... Uh, and then we'll read the passage uh, as it as uh, as we move through the sermon. So go ahead and have it open uh, in your laps. Keep it open. And with that, let's pray. Father, it is a true privilege to have your word open before us, to read your word, to hear it uh, proclaimed and expounded. Uh, when Christ is the um, is the goal, I pray that we would see Him this morning. I pray that we would cling to Him this morning as a result of uh, reading Your Word and hearing it proclaimed. I ask in His name, Amen. I want you to turn your your uh, imaginations on for a few moments. Imagine with me that uh, you are one of the Israelites who has just come out of Egypt. You've witnessed the ten plagues upon Pharaoh and upon the people of Egypt. You've plundered your Egyptian neighbors who were formerly your um, your your owners as they they had you in slavery. And you've taken these possessions that you've gained from them and your own meager possessions, you've packed them on a wagon, and you march out of Egypt um, with singing and great rejoicing. Uh, nearly a million Israelites are leaving with you. I'm sure it's dusty. I'm sure it's loud. Uh, but you head out. Uh, you've heard God's promises. You experienced the Passover meal. You heard about how God has committed Himself to you. In fact, as you leave, uh, God is leading you with a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire at night. And God has promised you that He is going to give you His protection, that He's going to give you His guidance, and that He is going to lead you toward that land that He is going to give to your descendants forever. And so you march out. But instead of taking the most direct route to Egypt, God has led you beside the Red Sea. And He said, it's time to break camp. And so, or not break camp, but to to make camp. So you you stop there. You start setting up your tents, uh, and you do what God says without thinking about it one much. You, this is where God has led you. Okay, this is great. You've made camp, but then off in the distance, you see Pharaoh's army begin charging towards you. You see his the, the dust clouds of his chariots as he is racing uh, at full gallop 
towards you. He's still a long way in the distance. But they're getting nearer and nearer. What would you think? What would you do? Listen to what the people of Israel did. This is from uh, Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 through 14. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, the people who were fearing greatly, he said to them, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you only have to be silent. Now this is just one example of many that we could point to where God put Israel right smack dab in the middle of impossible circumstances. And he simply said, trust in me. Charles Spurgeon says that this is the essence of faith. Casting oneself on the promise of God. And that's still true today. Faith lies in casting oneself on the promise of God. Casting yourself on Him who is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, namely Jesus Christ. And in casting yourself on Him, I mean that you will also be called to trust Him in the middle or in the midst or in the face of impossible circumstances. So we're going to see this morning how God brings Isaac to the point where Isaac finally casts off his fear and he embraces the faithfulness of God and the faith and, and God's faithfulness to his promises. He embraces God himself. Now since this is a continuation of a previous sermon, uh, and it was a couple of weeks ago since I was in Chattanooga last week, by the way, I worshipped in a barn with 400 other people. Uh, there's a barn up on top of the mountain that's about 10 miles or so away from Covenant College, and they have made it into a really nice church, but... Um, on, on days that it's nice and cool outside, they open the barn doors, all the the, 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 the garage doors on the barn, and and uh, it's a PCA church. I never never thought I'd worship in a PCA church out in a barn, but uh, the word of God was proclaimed, and and Christ was was worshipped. So anyway. Um, let me let me allow me just a couple of moments to refresh your memory what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. First of all, God sent a, a famine into the land of Canaan. This was a different famine than the famine that uh, came into the land of Canaan when when Abraham was alive. 
Um, and God knew that Isaac was an apple that did not fall from his father's tree. He knew that Isaac would take the, the path of least resistance. Uh, there's a famine in the land. I'll go down to Egypt. And so God said to uh, Isaac before he could go down to Egypt, he said, don't go down to Egypt, but dwell in the land which I shall tell to you. Uh, in verse 2. And then God reconfirmed to Isaac all the promises that he had given to his father Abraham. So look at verses uh, 3 through 5. God says to Isaac, Sojourn in the land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give your offspring all these lands. And in, in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So, God has reconfirmed these promises. He said to Isaac, stay here in the land. Isaac stayed in the land. He was living there in the area of Gerar. It was an area that was dominated by the Philistines. But Isaac's trust in God was also infused with a lot of trust in himself. And his, his uh, trust in himself was driven by an overriding fear. He was so fearful that he felt like he couldn't trust in God. He felt like he had to have some measure of control in his life to try and avoid this fear that, um, that was such, such a part of, uh, of who Isaac was. We saw two weeks ago that fear was an overriding theme in Isaac's life. In fact, we said it was his besetting uh, sin. It, fear seemed to trouble Isaac persistently. Verses 6 and 7, we saw um, those verses and, ha and, and it alerted us to this pattern in Isaac's life. So to refresh you, look at verses 6 and 7. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Now I need to remind you that the God who created the universe had given His promises to Isaac. The God of the universe was with Isaac. God had spoken numerous times to Abraham. Uh, in fact, Isaac was there on the mountain. Remember Genesis 22 when God spoke to Abraham? Isaac was there tied up, ready to be a sacrifice. He heard God speak. Um, also, God spoke to Isaac here in verses 3-5 through five that we just read. He reconfirmed his promises to, to Isaac. In other words, Isaac does not need to fear the Philistines. God is with Isaac. It's sinful for Isaac to make, uh, to make his wife pretend that she is his sister. It's sinful 
for Isaac to fear the Philistines and to move from place to place, as we'll see in a few moments, to avoid their potential anger and jealousy. It is sinful for Isaac to think only of his, self, his own self-preservation when God is with him. In fact, it's shown to be all the more foolish when we remember that Isaac is one of the patriarchs. Is God going to let His whole plan of salvation, His whole plan of redemption fall apart because of the jealousy of some, some Philistines? Because see, if there's no Isaac, then there's no Israel. If there's no Israel, there's no Messiah. But God is not going to allow Isaac to be killed. It was foolish for Isaac to think that he had to take matters into his own hands to save himself, to tell everybody that his wife is really his sister um, in order to save himself. God is absolutely, completely, totally, entirely, undividably, unshakably committed to Isaac. Nothing could separate Isaac from God's love for Isaac. God was for Isaac. Who could be against Isaac? Could tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? Could any of those things threaten Isaac since God is for him? Isaac's turning tail and he's running from the Philistines over and over, as we'll see in a moment. And he failed to understand that he was more than a conqueror through him who loved him. God ordered Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And when God ordered Abraham to do that, Abraham leaned himself completely on the promise of God. And he reasoned by faith that God would raise Isaac from the dead after he was sacrificed. Abraham learned that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation would be able to separate him from receiving every promise that God had made to him. Isaac had yet to grasp just how faithful God is to his promises. Especially when the circumstances seem impossible. God's promises to you are just as certain. God is absolutely, completely, totally, entirely, undividably, unshakably committed to you. I know it sounds good to you on Sunday morning when you're sitting in your comfortable pews in your Sunday best. You're going to walk out of here. And God is going to place you in impossible circumstances. Some of you may be sitting here feeling like you're in impossible circumstances. Uh, being concerned over a loved one who's not here because she's sick. Others of you without a job right now. Others of you um, 
just whatever, there's probably as many varying circumstances as there are people here this morning. In some way, to varying degrees, they all seem impossible. But God is just as committed, just as unshakably committed to you as He was to Isaac. God's going to place you in those impossible circumstances. And He is going to expect you to entrust yourself to Him in spite of every rational and self-preserving thought to the contrary. Let me ask you this. How many times have you wasted opportunities to trust in God because of a little bit of tribulation, a little bit of distress, a little bit of persecution, a little bit of danger? And then you wonder, why am I not growing in the Lord more? Well, you're wasting the opportunities. Isaac wasted a lot of opportunities to trust in God. Uh, the famine lasted a few years. And for those years, it appears Isaac's main goal was to, pres- to preserve his life. He was willing to sacrifice his wife's honor to preserve his own life. He was willing uh, to tuck tail and, and move every time the uh, Philistines uh, had a dispute with him rather than stand upon God's promises. Uh, Isaac's fear was not an occasional sin that popped up from time to time. It harassed him persistently. I'm thinking I forgot to pause and read the passage that I intended to read. Um, I keep referring to Isaac moving, and we need to... um, I want you to see this. I had it in red. I guess I got going too fast. Uh, I talk slow being from the south, but my mind still races beyond what my words can say. Um, Look with me at verses 12 through 22. I want to backfill here. I want you to see what's happening. And Isaac, beginning with verse 12, Genesis 26, And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth, and, and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And, and, and Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. You'll remember Abimelech from, the, um, from Abraham. This is actually a different Abimelech. Abimelech was actually a title of one of the Philistine rulers. It's like you had many different pharaohs, and they were all called Pharaoh. Abimelech is a, is a title like Pharaoh. So it's a different guy, same title. And here in verses 12 through 16, what it appears to me is that God is intentionally blessing Isaac, first of all because he loves him, but secondly because he wants to drive the Philistines in the area to jealousy because he wants to turn up the heat on Isaac. He wants Isaac, as we'll see, um, 
he wants to squeeze Isaac like a like a tube of toothpaste. I said a couple of weeks ago. See what's come. See what comes out. Well, God knows what's going to come out, and uh, God wants Isaac to see just what is inside him. And so they are they are um, jealous. They are filling in the wells that uh, Abraham had dug in order to uh, drive Isaac out of the area. So Isaac, being fearful, verse 17, he departed. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esk, uh, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they contended over that one also. So he called that name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name uh, Rehoboth saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. And so Isaac, because he is driven by fear, the Philistines come and they quarrel with him. And so instead of him trusting in the promise of God, he moves from place to place as the Philistines come and make these quarrels with him. Isaac's fear, as I said, is not an occasional sin that popped up from time to time. It harassed him persistently. It is very possible for a Christian to go through prolonged periods of spiritual drought while sin pulls and guides a person, a Christian, day by day, month by month, year by year, even decade by decade. Uh, this time period that we're reading about in Genesis 26 was a, time, was, was a time period over several years. And over these several years, Isaac is trying to preserve his own life. It, you don't have any sense that he's looking to God. He's moving from place to place simply looking out for himself. There was faith in God. He obeyed God. Um, God loved him. But Isaac was being driven by, its, by his fear. Parenthetically, it is very tempting for believers who are not progressing spiritually in their relationship with God and are struggling to live by faith day by day it's, it's very tempting for Christians to fall back into their orthodoxy for their assurance. Spurgeon, Spurgeon says, Orthodoxy is merely another form of rationalism if it be learned from without. And what I'm saying here, what Spurgeon's saying, is if you're not living by faith day by day, yet you trust in, in Jesus Christ, you're a believer, but you're not growing um, in your in your walk with the Lord because you've got sin that's persisting. It's just very easy for assurance to fall back to my orthodoxy. Well, I believe the right things even though I'm not living the right things. Um, 
as 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 I know I should. I, in fact, I, I came. I've told this story years ago um, when I was in seminary. Um, you might as well have called it cemetery because uh, for my faith, because I was studying the Bible so much, I was so busy that I wasn't living for the Lord. I was studying the Bible academically. And uh, my last year in seminary, I was in Sinclair Ferguson's class. And he was praying at the beginning of class. And something he said gave me a visual picture of what, what my Christian life looked like. And I said, am I really a Christian? And then I reasoned in my mind, oh yeah, I'm a Christian because I, I was walking with the Lord very faithfully for years. And because I'm, I know that I belong to the Lord because I was walking with the Lord three years ago, therefore I was elected. Because I'm elected and God's not going to change His love for me, then I have assurance of salvation now even though I'm not really walking by faith right now. And when I, when I looked at that, it's like I was able to stand back and look and realize that I was drawing my assurance from past actions rather from my present walk with Christ and my present trust in Christ. It, I, I got up out of class mid-prayer because he prayed a long time. Uh, and I just I went outside and I began walking around and just confessing my my sin and my lack of, of living by faith, my lack of of really trusting in Christ. And it was like my, my Christian life was like a, a if you had a bait caster and, and it's and it's uh and it backlash and all the string goes everywhere and it's in a knot and you just have to cut the line. That's what my Christian life at that moment seemed like to me. And and I went to Christ and it was like Christ took a big pair of scissors and just cut the line and said, I want you to trust in me. And it was, uh, it was, um, it was, it was, it was really life changing for me. And I think this is something of what Isaac is going through. He's going through this long period of trying to trust in himself. He's not trusting in God, and I know that it is tempting for believers to do the same thing. Isaac was a patriarch. God was committed to Isaac. God is committed to you. But yet I know how tempting it is, how easy it is to, to rest on your, your, your doctrine without living for Christ day by day, walking by faith, moment by moment. And so Isaac is experiencing one of these extended uh, periods of, of, of spiritual drought. This drought in Isaac's life was far more dangerous than anything that the Philistines could do to him. But God remained faithful to him. God will remain faithful to you. As I said two weeks ago, as long as you can repent, you can turn to God. There's no length of time that erodes God's, God's love. In fact, I think Ben Turner last week preached on this, didn't he? Didn't he preach on love is patient? God's love is patient. 
Isaac did not recognize that God was sovereignly shepherding him. Each time that the Philistines came and and filled in a new well, or each time that Isaac uh, was blessed materially and it drove the Philistines to jealousy, he didn't recognize that God was still sovereign. That God was the one who was blessing him, who was driving these Philistines to jealousy, who was motivating these Philistines to fill in the wells and to dispute with him. In fact, Isaac, he didn't like it that these disputes were happening. Isaac complained. He called one of the wells uh, Esk, which means dispute. He called another uh, Sitna, which means opposition. He wasn't happy with his circumstances. But God was squeezing him. And He's helping Isaac come to the end of himself and finally trust in God rather than trusting in self-preservation. Same thing God did with Abraham. Abraham, go sacrifice your son, your only son whom you love. Talk about being squeezed. Talk about being put in, in impossible circumstances. Talk about trusting God in difficult circumstances. Well, it took years, but Isaac finally was ready to receive God's Word. Look at verses 23 through 25. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So Isaac built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. How do we know that Isaac really repented? That he really entrusted himself to God and to God's promises? Well, we know it because Isaac worshipped. Again, verse 25, He built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. Worship is never so real and never so sweet as when it's mixed with the tears, the bitter tears of repentance. In conclusion, there were two men that were swept away into a river by a flood. The rescue workers waited downstream for them with ropes because there was a waterfall just beyond the, the rescue workers. And when the men in the river came within earshot of the rescue workers, they began calling out to them, Grab the rope! Grab the rope! One of the men grabbed the rope. But the other man, just as he was about to grab the rope, saw a big tree floating by. And that tree looked so much more inviting than that little bitty rope. That rope may break. This tree, I can crawl on top of it. It was a fatal mistake. Both the man and the tree went over the waterfall and he was drowned. But the man who grabbed the rope was pulled ashore because the rope had a connection with the people who were on the shore. As we float down the river of life, there are a lot of things that will seem strong and sturdy like that tree, but they're not connected to the shore. Isaac said, She's my sister! And told a lie, trying to rest in himself. He's not connected to the shore. 
put our faith in these things that are not connected to the shore, to our peril. But we can put our trust in the rope, not because there's something in the rope, but because of what the rope is connected to. It's connected to the shore. Christ is the shore, so to speak. He's there on the shore holding the rope. And as we lay hold of the rope by faith, He pulls us ashore. He is our salvation. He is the object of our faith. He is the one whom God calls us to entrust ourselves to when we are when we find ourselves in the middle, in the midst of, right in the face of these impossible circumstances. Where are you placing your trust? Let's pray together. Father, I pray for this your congregation that that we all would place our trust afresh and anew in our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would wrap our arms around Him for dear life, that we, by faith, would live for Him and with Him. Father, I'm reminded of Your promise that the smoldering wick You will not snuff out, the bruised reed You will not break. And I imagine there... Uh, here this morning some who are feeling like a smoldering wick or a bruised reed because of uh, sin in their life that uh, is always um, accosting them, harassing them moment by moment. God, I pray that You would sweetly yet powerfully Draw them back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Help them to find their assurance in Him alone and in nothing else. Help them to grab onto Him alone and not to any uh, inviting trees that are floating down the river with them. I ask in Jesus' name, Amen.